Good afternoon, everyone. Happy Thursday. Thanks for taking the time to join us today for this uh, important presentation. We are excited uh, to be back with Karen Meyer Cunningham uh, today. Mayor, I always say it wrong a little bit, um, but we're um, we're glad that you are all here. I just wanted to give you a little um, housekeeping items uh, really quick. Um, you guys are in webinar mode, so we can't see you or hear you, but we do know you're there, and we are glad that you are here today. Um, we do um, love questions, and if you have a question, probably somebody else does too, so we, um, we aim to answer as many questions as we can uh, throughout the presentation. Of course, Karen uh, reserves the, the right to say, hey, I have a slide on that, and um, kind of push that in, in, in that case, but don't be shy. Do put your questions in the chat box today. Um, so today we are kind of talking about some tools and, and resources as it relates um, to the school and uh, education for your children, um, special education resources. Um, Karen is a big deal, and we love uh, partnering with, um, with Karen, and she's the special education boss and the boss she is. She is really good at what she does, and so it's certainly um, our pleasure to be here uh, with her today. So I'm Allison Scobber, Consolidated Planning Group. If you've joined our webinars before, um, we are glad that you are back. If this is your first time, um, Consolidated Planning Group is a holistic special needs financial planning firm. We do webinars every single week on topics concerning um, planning for special needs. We partner with various um, partners all throughout uh, the state and the country as it relates to um, helping our families with individuals with disabilities. Um, people come to us um, because they want to they want to plan for their loved one um, and their and and their future, especially if we have a child that has. Um, you know, care needs that are going to be long after we're gone, even sometimes 25 to 35 years, we're able to put future care cost estimates together, like how much do I need to fund a special needs trust? Um, how do I have money in the right buckets to preserve eligibility for state and federally funded programs? Um, how do I set up an ABLE account? We can help people set those things up. Transition planning, what happens when you're gone? Where where is your loved one going to be? Who's going to care for them? Who's going to provide those services that mom and dad provide for free, right? Um, so we help on all of those things. Our firm is um, specifically nuanced um, in special needs. We eat, sleep, and breathe it. I am a parent, uh, parent to four, um, two with disabilities um, that have transitioned into adulthood. So we do get this. Um, there's very few advisors in the U.S. that are nuanced in special needs. In fact, there is about 250,000 advisors out there, and only about 125 total are nuanced and special needs. Your situation is specialized. It is important to work with a specialist, and that is including when we're talking about these education topics. Your child's education um, is so, so critically important. And, you know, I, I always say in the school, you know, as parents, we, you know, they say that the days are long, but the years go by quick. And that's true in the school, too. You know, as far as times, it's like days turn into weeks and weeks turns into months. And then before you know it, it's a year. And if your child wasn't getting the resources and, and having the tools available to them that they needed, uh, they could be critically behind. So um, 
Karen's going to talk about some of these things and um, kind of just bring us into the loop on what what's going on in this um, in this in this world that we're living in in education. And I know that education weighs high on the um, every parent's mind all the time. It's like every year I could feel myself stirring around December, January. In February of what changes I was going to make for next year, how are we going to turn the knobs, what were we going to dump, what were we going to start over, you know, those types of things. And especially now with, um, you know, school ending, um, you know, it's kind of on everybody's brain, especially the students. Um, I, I know that that's on your mind now, too, for, for how can we position ourselves um, for next year. So, Karen, thanks for, for being with us. Again, everyone put your questions in the chat box today as we're going along. I'm going to read those out to Karen. Thank you, Karen. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you, Allison. Thank you for serving families. We greatly appreciate the opportunity to partner with you. And so um, if you haven't met, I'm Karen Mayor Cunningham, Special Education Boss, training everyone who sits at the IEP 504 table, uh, helping them to navigate and negotiate successful student outcomes. And so as you can see on the next slide, my, my one goal simply is to make sure that we um, have successful student outcomes. And I think that one of the ways that we do those is that we are fully prepared when we enter into the IEP 504 process. And unfortunately, special ed, just like parenting, is a learn as you go. Um, the difference is we can pull on other parents with young children or pull on other parents with kids in elementary school. But when you have a child with a disability, it's its own unique uh, walk and experience. And um, often we sit at IEP tables or 504 tables with people that have really great hearts but are completely misinformed or not informed at all. And we are, for lack of a better word, blindly following their lead. And so I certainly want my parents to be able to fully partner and fully participate and have meaningful participation in the IEP process. But without some baseline background training, you're going to struggle to do that. And so when I was thinking about four really big, important components, to give you a framework of how to be uh, more ready to fully participate and um, to exercise your procedural rights and safeguards. I felt like these four areas, and then we're going to go over them, um, will really give you a good foundation to start going forward in our in your training. Uh, certainly, Special Education Academy, we have weekly trainings that are available to you on social media. Um, if you email us at advocate at Special Education Academy for attending this, we'll get you um, a free uh, two-week pass to the uh, academy where we have hundreds of hours of training and workbooks. You know, our part is for you to be fully trained so that you can fully participate and make decisions based on um, information that you have that's valuable and authentic and helps implement the IEP process. So um, let's first look at the next um, um, slide. We're gonna talk about the TEA framework of um, 18, um, framework 18 glossary of acronyms on the next slide. So when you're sitting in these meetings, first of all, the first acronym is gonna be TEA. What's TEA, right? TEA is the Texas Education Agency. And so the Texas Education Agency has um, many um, educational service centers, and there's one called um, the Educational Service Center 18, and it's the TEA framework, and they have a glossary of acronyms and terms. And so we hear a lot of acronyms sitting in IEP meetings. We just busted out PCS, IEP, BIP, ARD, and you know most of my clients are just glossed over. They have no idea what anybody's talking about. And because that's a space where special educators 
um, attorneys and advocates and um, um, service providers sit in, we just sort of rattle off these acronyms and these glossary terms. And so if you go to the Texas Education Agency or just go on any um, uh, Google and type in Texas Education Agency Framework 18 Glossary, this wonderful, wonderful book will come up. And I used it for years. I haven't even um, accessed it in a while, but I printed it out again today and it's 37 pages long. And it's a full glossary of what the TEA terms mean legally. Because when you're in an IEP meeting, you're in a legal meeting and maybe somebody there has the educational training and maybe they don't. Um, you would be remiss to think that people at public schools have taken special education law training. Do they have time to do that? I, I wouldn't imagine that they do, but special education, IDEA, is 118 pages long, just the federal code, right? And then in Texas, because we have to do everything bigger, I think currently our regulations are 380 pages long, which I also happen to have print out because I like to print. And so this is going to give you a really good starting place of when somebody says educational records, early childhood services, ESY, homeschool, IEP facilitated, LSSP, LRE, when we're just rattling off these terms and acronyms, then you can turn there and go, well, actually, that's not what ESY means. So that you're not just being told information by somebody that may have part of the information, but not the full information. So um, avail yourself of that. Go to the TA website and print those off today. Now, the next area, once you have these glossary of terms and acronyms, I want you to know about your dispute resolution options. And so um, to think that we're never going to disagree with people is silly, right? So there's a reason that parents are provided dispute resolution options. And that is because sometimes we'll have a dispute. And that simply means that we don't agree on components, um, evaluation, placement, decisions, development, as it relates to a student with a disability. And so what are those options? How are they applicable to me? And when should I trigger them or use them or exercise them? So let's go to the first one. So the next one, we'll show you the first option. That's a district grievance. And so that's what I would call a low level entry um, to um, exercise your dispute resolution. So district grievance means that you're going to reach out to your local education agency. That's what a district is called in Texas. And they will probably have a form that you literally can populate and you can fill out about your grievance about what has occurred for your child. Um, today, we're talking about special education, but in the school district, and then it will be sent to probably an assistant superintendent, a coordinator, somebody that will receive your grievance and address it. Now, if you're ever going to exercise any of these six options, um, parents have a tendency, and I'm a parent, I thought all three of my cherubs were perfect and flawless. And sometimes as parents, when we have a dispute or a complaint or a difference with somebody in a school district, we send off emails or we communicate in meetings that are very passionate, sometimes a little bit elevated, but they don't address any real legal problems. And so sort of as when I'm training people, as, as I always say, as a police officer would say to you, when he's asking you questions about what happened, he, what is he going to say? Just the facts, ma'am, right? And so when you're exercising any of these six dispute resolution options, I want you to focus on just the facts and 
which of those procedural safeguards, which you were handed at the beginning of every IEP meeting annually, which of those do you believe have been violated and rise to the level of you needing to file a district grievance? When you keep those more succinct and address those items, you're going to get more traction and I think better outcomes. And so it's really important that you separate the parent passion between what we call the question before the court, right? And those are two different things. As a hearing officer told me one time, there are lots of things that are wrong that are not illegal. Did you have a question, Allison? No, I just wanted to say, um, isn't it important, Karen, that um, like when we're having these issues, is, isn't it important that we communicate in writing as opposed to the around the water cooler conversation with the teacher or the principal? I, like what, I mean, yes, doesn't something so, in writing trigger something? Right. And so at the end of every meeting, you are provided a PWN, which you'll look at when you get your glossary, and it's called a prior written notice. What's in, unusual about it is it's given after the meeting, right? And so I always say to the parent, once I receive the school district's prior written notice, which really is a summary of the activities that we rejected, accepted, and moved on in the IEP meeting, then I will respond in writing back to the school district because what you say out loud at the meeting is not always captured in writing. The deliberation or the case conference or whatever the notes are not a representation of the meeting. So you want to reply back in writing when you've had a moment to take a breath and you know, you've had a snack because you might be hangry and you've really rethought it because sometimes we're just upset about the struggle that our child is going through with their disability. And that's not unusual but we have to separate what is the student's rights, what are my rights, and what do I need to file on? And I think that's a really important point that we do it in writing and that keeps it clean because as you move up in these other dispute resolution items, those writings, those emails, those prior written notice will become part of exhibits or offerings to uh, persons looking at other investigations. Okay? For sure. So we have, a, we have a quick question um, yeah. I'd like to um, pose to you. Um, my kindergarten child was assessed in California by a school district and eligible for special education services under autism and speech and language delay. My child was not offered small setting classrooms such as SDC or, uh, or was, nor were they placed in the autism program. He's in general ed classroom. And when I bring up his placement options, I'm told we have to exhaust other services in general ed classroom. What else can I do? So that's a great question. We literally just finished a series on the Academy called the Continuum of Services. So you can access those through the Academy, but you have to be offered a continuum of services based on the child's, as we say in the law, unique circumstances. Now, while we don't have to replicate um, this setting in Texas that happened in um, California, we have to replicate addressing the student's needs. Often when you're talking about an autism program, there's great specificity to it. So there's um, there are kiddos that have autism programs that some are kids that have an intellectual disability um, and some that have really high behavior and emotional needs and maybe some high dysregulation. And parents don't always know uh, the population that is in those specific autism programs. Um, different states have different funding um, and they have different names and settings for special education services. I wish there were a million special education settings. There's not, but we are charged with under LRE, the least restrictive environment, to try to maximize their education 
with their non-disabled peers. And if that's not successful, then we have to look at other settings. So it's very important that when you go back to the meeting that you address and let them know, I don't believe that my continuum of services were offered to me related to my students' unique circumstances. Okay, so let's look at the next slide. So the next slide is gonna be your next um, um, option. So this is a state complaint. And um, again, it's very important when you fill this out um, that you remember, you just get to fill it out once. When we talk about a grievance, it's a little more um, informal. It's a little more conversational. This, the district's probably gonna ask you to come in and have a meeting with somebody. But once you file a state complaint, it is filed. And within 10 days of the Texas Education Agency receiving your state complaint where you're addressing which of your procedural rights were violated, which of your um, uh, standard rights were violated, which of your child's rights were violated, within 10 days of the state receiving it, it will go directly to the school district special education attorney. And they're going to respond to it as an attorney would respond with legal language. So again, you want to make sure that when you pull out your procedural safeguards and you're talking about what you're complaining at the state level, as it relates to an IEP, we're going to talk about what? What IDEA violations occurred? What individual disabilities education violations occurred? And so those would be your procedural safeguards. And we have a training on that on the academy as well. And so you wouldn't say Allison was mean to me at the meeting and she doesn't like me and she's never nice to me and my husband. You would say the parent was denied meaningful participation in the IEP process. So the more that you speak the language that is the law, which is partnered with the state statute, the more gains you're going to get on the state complaint. Because we have to remember, these persons at the state were not part of your meeting or meetings or ongoing um, unhappiness, right? So you need to stick to the elements and the components of the state requirements for the law for special education. Now, within 60 days, the state complaint is opened, investigated, and completed. Um, and you will get a letter saying we found um, that there was a violation, we did not find a violation, and they will give recommendations to the district and the parents. You have to know that in all six of these options, they're going to ask you to, you know what? to go back and sit down at the table with Allison. Remember all of our problems started at the IP table and no matter if you go district or all the way up to federal and I do them all, they're gonna ask us all to go back to the table and take a breath and work together again. And so it's important to remember that and that um, disagreeing is, is normal, but anything that you can do before you get to these processes, you wanna maximize those options. Just real quick, Karen, can you tell us again how to get the two-week voucher for attending these webinars for the yeah, academy? Just, is there a scholarship for that as well? Yeah, just e uh, just email us. We'll give you, we'll email you back a free code. Just email us at advocate at specialeducationacademy.com, advocate at specialeducationacademy.com, and we'll get you that uh, code to log in, and you can um, watch for two weeks. You can download the 8 million videos and workbooks and see how many outfits I have. Um, but we want you to have the resources and be trained. Okay, just put that in the chat box. Thank so you. thank you for that. Appreciate that. Yeah. So let's look at the next one. So facilitated IEP. So the facilitated IEP meeting is a great tool that's pretty new to Texas. And I've recently been using it a lot more than I used to. Um, a facilitated IEP means that we're in an IEP meeting and we are we're not able to work together. And so we reach out to the state 
and the state will send a trained facilitator to come and participate in your reconvene IEP meeting. They are not for you. They are not for the district. They're ones that are sort of going to, you know, I don't want to say referee, but provide, you know, good base of how we are going to articulate our needs and concerns in a respectful way, keeping it a business meeting and follow the requirements and the tenets of the state requirements as it relates to how you do handle an IEP meeting or in Texas, we would say an ARD meeting. Um, I greatly appreciate the facilitators from TEA. Um, they often in a meeting will say, well, well, Allison, did you think about doing it like this? Karen, have you thought about doing it like this? They'll offer different options. They can't make the district do something. They can't make the parents do something, but it's a wonderful tool. Um, and often parents feel outnumbered. I've been at IEP meetings. I was at IEP meeting yesterday. I was like, I didn't know there were this many cubes on the Zoom based on the student's needs. The more needs they have, the more providers they're going to have involved in those meetings. Um, and it just gives, sometimes it gives the parents a sense that they're not crazy. You know, as parents, parents often say, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm like, well, you know, we're all parents. So parenting's a little crazy as, as, but it's a different emotional load when you have a child with a disability. We're fighting with the insurance company. We're fighting with this. Everything often feels like it's a fight in a parent's life with a child with disability. And this really gives you levels the playing field so that we can make better decisions uh, for students. And I find them to be very collaborative and unbelievably helpful and always very calm. I always feel like the facilitator should have a podcast. So uh, certainly exercise that option. It is started. The facilitated IEP meeting is sent, the form is sent from the principal at your campus to the state. So that principal has to initiate it. Okay. The next dispute resolution option is mediation. I love mediation. I'm a certified mediator for the family courts. Um, and mediation is just a really fancy way of, can we get two people to come back to the table and move their positions and come to a decision? And so mediation is voluntary. So if the school district reaches out and says, Karen, we would like to mediate with you and your client, I ask my client, if my client wants to participate, we do. If they don't, we do not, and vice versa. So I find in almost every mediation I've ever been in all these years, that really, the district comes to the table in good faith with the opportunity to negotiate. Now, there are things that you need to know about mediation. Let's not be posting it on the interweb. Let's not be tagging us on social media. Let's not say we're going to go in there and give it to them tomorrow. It's not a good idea. Mediation, you have to sign a confidentiality agreement. And you have to understand that if you break that confidentiality, you will be writing somebody a check. So mediation is sealed. And my clients will ask me, how long is it sealed for? I'm like, while you're on the planet, because it covers the safety and sort of the depth and breadth that we can go in to look at options to resolve a conflict. All of these are about resolving a conflict predicated on the fact that an IDEA violation occurred and we're trying to return the student back to where they would have been had the IDEA violation not occurred. So I cannot disclose what outcomes I've received in mediations. I can tell you in almost always Every mediation I've been at and participated in, I believe there was um, a measure of good faith by the school district to try to resolve the issue with the parent. Now, did the parent accept every mediation offer that was ever offered? No, but it's not my decision. It's the parent's decision. But I think it's a great tool. Once the mediation is signed, a settlement agreement is signed, then you go back to the table at an IEP meeting, an ARD meeting, and then you implement those components. And um, there's no limitation to what they are. 
but the only persons that can ever see it are the persons that have an educational need. Okay, let's look at the next option. The next option is due process. I'm in a due process right now. I have been in many due process. Um, I like due process and that it, it is um, equitable. And what I mean by that is it's not voluntary. If the parent files due process or the district files due process, we both have to bring our um, areas of disagreement legally in a format before SOA, the State Office of Administrative Hearings, to an impartial due process hearing officer. And so uh, parents have procedural rights and uh, districts have, have procedural rights that they have to comply with as well. And so there's a wonderful book called the Dispute Resolution Handbook for TEA, Dispute Resolution Handbook, and they have all of this in here. Um, what I like about due process is it triggers um, um, a requirement in Texas now that if I file due process on behalf of a client within 15 days, 15 days, I am required to sit down with the school district and talk about our differences. 95% of all court cases, wherever they are, are settled. They're settled. Judges, hearing officers, fact finders, federal investigators, everybody wants you to settle. So if we can get to that place, let's get to that. So 95% is a pretty high number. So hundreds and hundreds of due processes are filed every year in Texas. Only about 25 ever go actually in a full hearing before a hearing officer. So that's a great opportunity for me to sit down and let's say that Allison was the district representative. It's usually you're sitting down with people that were not at the IEP meeting. It's usually going to be... Um, the special education executive director, maybe a coordinator, because I am not an attorney, I'm a non-attorney representative for families. The district is not allowed to bring an attorney to that initial resolution meeting, which for me is fantastic. And um, I often find that when advocates and attorneys get involved, we're just talking to each other instead of talking in a collaborative way. So um, I very much am thankful for this process. It is a very large investment. Baseline, if you're going to file due process with um, an attorney, a litigator, I'm not an attorney, um, you're probably going to be looking at an investment of $30,000. Um, there is no guarantee you're presenting your case before one hearing officer, an impartial due process hearing officer, but the onus, the responsibility, the duty is on the petitioner, the parent, to prove their burden, the, in fact, that A, student was denied a free appropriate public education and B, the student was harmed, okay? So that is due process. Um, um, let's look at the next option. So the next option is um, one that I- Someone oh. said, um, why is mediation sealed? Aren't mediators um, unwittingly hiding the wrongdoing? So the mediator has, that, so the mediator doesn't sign the mediation. So the mediated settlement is signed between the parties. I don't sign the mediated settlement. It's usually by mom and dad, and it's usually the superintendent. So that is the settlement. The settlement is between those two parties. And it will say at the beginning, we agree to, I'm just giving you an example, to give Billy Smith 30 hours in dyslexia training. We agree to give Billy Smith 30 hours in social skills training. I'm just giving you some sort of uh, within, you know, 24 months. And then it will have pages and pages and pages of what I call legalese of hold harmless, right? We are in love with each other. You're never going to file on these um, allegations again. You will hold us harmless. 
Um, and it's sealed to give, um, I think, both parties an opportunity to resolve, completely resolve their issue. Um, because some of the settlements can be what I would say quite generous, um, it might appear to people to be quite generous. If that was open, then that would probably give a burden to um, the parties that would be hard to sustain. Um, again, it's, it's about that specificity. The great thing about mediation is that nobody can make you any, do anything and nobody's making a decision for you. And so I really, really um, appreciate the components and opportunity of mediation. Some parties agree that you it's unsealed, but most um, all of it is required that whatever happened during the mediation, you can't talk about. So let's say that Allison came in and said, Karen, we're going to offer you $1. And then she came back and said, we'll offer you $1.50. I can't go out and talk about during the day how our mediation talks and negotiations moved up and down. So those are the components that are sealed. Um, and um, have to stay that way to protect the, the tenants of mediation. Okay. Um, so the last dispute resolution option is the OCR, which I adore. Um, the Office of Civil Rights, um, U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights is one of 13 federal entities that relates to education in our government. Um, they um, cover many areas from race, retaliation, the Boy Scout Act, sex, age, gender, and disability. The three areas that I file on with the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights are going to be race, uh, retaliation, and then mostly um, disability. And so while that sounds great, we can just file on disability, it comes with great specificity. So you want to make sure that you understand the scope of the Office of Civil Rights and what they, um, what their jurisdiction is. And their jurisdiction um, is found in their CPM, their case processing manual. So if you go to the Office of Civil Rights and type in case processing manual, it will print it out. And so just for a ballpark, this is what I tell parents, the Office of Civil Rights is going to cover um, 504 accommodations. So in a 504 plan, you would have accommodations. In an IEP, you have accommodations. Your accommodations are a civil right. You cannot be denied your civil rights. And so often I find school districts fail to implement students' accommodations with fidelity. They're supposed to be implemented RE, routinely and effectively. And because of that, you denied them their IEP. It's called failure to implement. Probably have over 100 civil rights complaints open right now. I have some systemic complaints um, across the nation. They're a wonderful entity to deal with. Um, the Office of Civil Rights, I explain it as it's a pregnancy. If you're in a rush, you don't need to reach out to them. It's going to take a while. It's a federal entity. Um, it will take over six months to get to um, a decision or an outcome. So if you have that time, if my client has that time, it's certainly one of the options that we um, exercise. Okay. One person says, what in PS can one hang a violation if, if they believe their child's needs, goals, not just a 504 accommodation, but school says the child um, does not require social instruction, and I disagree. So I, I would say when you're in the meetings, um, we, we make decisions on one four-letter word, data. So I would ask the school, I, I think we get so busy in meetings begging that we stop asking, requiring the school to present their data. So please provide me the data that he is successful and doesn't need this, right? So if there's a need, an educational need, emotionally, functionally, academically, behaviorally, 
communicative or related or instructional service provide, we have to provide that, right? So special ed is, I have a disability and I'm in need of special education and or related services. A 504 is simply um, a civil rights act that says you cannot be denied accommodations in a school. 504, no teaching, no training, no instruction, no tracking goals, no mitigating the impact of their disability. IEP is an individualized education program. So if you disagree, you can always exercise one of your rights. You can ask for an IEE, an independent education evaluation, to have an outside evaluator reevaluate your student to look at those outcomes. Okay. All right. So this next section are, you know, books. We can never have enough information. I'm an information junkie. You looked at my other wall. That seems like it's all that I buy. But Pete Wright um, is is the gold standard. So Pete Wright, a little background. In the 50s, he had an IEP, and it literally said in his IEP evaluation to his parents that you're. They said to Pete Wright's parents, "Your child is an idiot." That's actually what they typed out. And based upon that, and his parents' non-belief of that um, uh, data point, and he did struggle to learn. Pete Wright is an attorney and a federal attorney and litigates at the federal level. And he's just such an amazing story of overcoming and um, not believing what one person told them in a meeting. And so he has an amazing book called Pete's, Pete Wright, A Special Education Law. And he just came out with the third edition. Like it literally just came out. So if you go to Wright's Law, W-R-I-G-H-T-S law.com, their website. Now, their website does look like it's a little bit 1990. It's very busy, but if you met Pete, it kind of matches him. So, Wright's Law, um, and he has all of those books there. They're available for print on demand, or they will ship them to you. Additionally, September 30th, he will be in Dallas doing a one-day conference. I will be there as a vendor, um, and many of my advocates would be there. So, you guys, it's not very often he comes to Texas. He's been to Texas twice this year. So, he'll be in Dallas September 30th, so avail yourself of that. Um, he has a second book. Can you give me that website again? Rights yeah. Law, what? Rightslaw.com. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then he also has another book um, that was uh, written by him and Pat Howie, who was an amazing, she's an amazing um, paralegal. And it's called Emotions to Advocacy. And really, um, I mean, Allison and I both know that is the journey, right? Emotions to Advocacy, because you have to be able to to know that this is just a business meeting. The special ed meeting is just a business meeting. And if you can learn to take out extreme emotions in that meeting, you're gonna be way more successful. So certainly go out and get Rights Law, their third edition just came out for special education law, and then also get Emotions to Advocacy um, by Pete Wright and Pat Howie. Amazing, amazing books. You can get them on demand um, and you can get them mailed to you as well. And then the last one I wanted to refer you guys to um, is CADRA. That's the very la last slide that we have, CADRA. And so people, I don't think people know about CADRA. It is the most amazing federal entity. It is the Center for Appropriate, I think it's funny, Center for Appropriate Dispute Resolution in Special Education. So it's the Center for Appropriate Dispute Resolution in Special Education. If you type in CADRA, it'll come up. So the National Center on Dispute Resolution and Special Education supports state education agencies. So the name of your state education agency is called an SEA. The local education agency, that's where your child goes to school, whether it's a county, a district, or a city. And they federally fund training schools, 
training states, and most importantly, training parents, because at their opening mission statement says, this is what they believe. Conflict is a natural part of any collaborative effort or ongoing relationship. And that's a great statement. Conflict is a natural part of any collaborative effort or ongoing relationship. That should probably be on all wedding invitations, right? So conflict is going to occur. It is not a bad thing. And I think often people get in special ed meetings and their feelings get hurt. Special ed meeting is no place for feelings. This is a business meeting. We have to make decisions based on uh, rate of progress, expected outcomes, and how we maximize the IEP for the student's unique circumstances. It is not personal, it is business. So go to CADRA, they have so many trainings, they have webinars, they have ongoing trainings, they have charts, they have graphs, they will walk you through in great detail, much more than I could do here, your dispute resolution options, everything about the foundational pieces of special education, um, and it's just an amazing website. And so um, I think the thing that I found the most helpful without exception or exemption has got to be Pete Wright's special education law book um, and um, Emotions to Advocacy. The first time I read Emotions to Advocacy and then had the blessing of actually seeing Pat Howie in person teach it, I don't believe she does that anymore, was it made me think that I wasn't cuckoo, right? Because it is your child. It is your, it's your grandchild. It's somebody that you're the guardian over. It's the, I don't think anything's more important to me than my children. Um, and you, when you add this layer on, this additional layer that you know you go into these meetings not fully equipped to work through this hour meeting or 45 minute meeting, it puts you at a disadvantage. And I don't ever want parents to be at a disadvantage. And these are some of the most amazing tools. Additionally, I would say also in Texas, avail yourself of the Texas Education Agency. If you go to SPEDTEX, S-P-E-D, tex.org, spedtex.org. They are amazing. And I email them all the time. And I will say, this little shenanigan happened today. And they are a great resource. And every email they send back, whether it's on ESY or evaluations or placement or just goofiness, um, I keep that in a file. And I've built great relationships and great decisions and meetings by referencing back because they give me the statute and the code. There's no way you could ever learn it all. I'm ongoing and learning, but these are some really great foundational pieces to have in your tool belt so that you can get to these meetings um, and get successful student outcomes for your kids. Karen, we have a few questions. Yeah. Um, one says, my child is three and currently receives special therapy services through the school district. I'm concerned that the data the SLP is collecting during each each session is not accurate. The SLP has provided feedback every session from January to March, stating uh, that he's unable to make any progress with his goals. And I um, explained this is very inconsistent with private speech therapy and what I see at home. Um, goals with school and private speech are almost identical. Fast forward from the end of March to the current, the SLP is starting, stating that all goals are being met at 100%. And I know this isn't accurate. Um, what can I do? I've addressed this concern with the district mentor and the district coordinator and no resolution. Right. So a couple of things I would, um, first of all, if we're at 0%, um, then there's an onus, a duty, responsibility by the school district to come back and write new IEP goals. We don't go from zero to 100. Doesn't matter who you are. Um, I would ask for the, uh, a copy of the raw data collection sheets. 
and the modality that she uses um, for those outcomes. Let's let's just say, you know, for conversation's sake, he is at 100%, right? Then that requires us uh, to come back to the table and write new appropriate IEPs uh, to mitigate the impact of his disability. Thank you for that. So here's another one, and you can tell us what, I know we, we don't all have the acronym list yet. Um, so if a parent requests PWN, so you'll tell us what that is, because not everybody knows, does that mean if there's a disagreement or refusal that the district has to file due process? I know for IEEs, that's a yes, but say for other things such as re remediation or something like that, how does that work, Karen? And what is the PWN again? Remind us. It's a prior written notice. So there's a legal obligation. Okay. It has seven components under Part B of IDEA that's supposed to be not just um, Allison, you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. That's not a PWN. So there are legal requirements on the PWN. We have a training on that on the academy. Um, I ask for a PWN all the time and it changes the response. So let's say Allison, bless her heart, had never met Karen or spoken Karen. And she just said, oh, it's got good grades. So we're not doing testing. I would say, okay, Allison, since you're choosing to deny the parent testing, please provide that denial in, in a prior written notice in writing. Okay, just kidding, we'll do the testing. It's amazing when you require them to fulfill their legal obligation, which they may or may not have done, how that changes outcomes immediately. So I use the word denied twice. So should you choose to deny Allison testing for her child, please provide that denial in writing in a prior written notice by close of business. And all of a sudden, just kidding, we're happy to do that. So you need to know what those phrases are and how to use them effectually. You're not, we're not threateners, we're just exercising our procedural rights. That's good. Um, okay, two more. Um, what are my rights getting my child to the appropriate placement? I've called various IEP meetings to address this, but I keep getting the runaround. His teacher also agrees that the child needs a different placement um, due to his behavior, toileting issues. He's suffering academically as well. He's trying to learn how to communicate using a technology de device. And I, and I found out that um, his general ed teacher is not even trained on this. Um, any advice for this one? Yeah, I have a lot of advice for that one. Um, so we just finished a series. I feel like I just keep saying we just finished, but at my age, everything is we just finished. We did a long series on the Assistive Technology Act of 1998, which is one of the eight pillars of IDEA, which gives federal funding and requirements for devices and trainings, whatever you need for students. We know that all of us know that assistive technology has changed all of our lives. And of course, it changes the lives for children with disabilities. However, um, if you gave me a phone that was an Apple phone, I don't know how to use that. I could learn it if somebody taught me that. So when we have a child using a BOCD, a voice output communication device, it's a total different language modality. We learn language by immersion. You talk to, I talked to my grandchild for two years before he started talking and he is talking. We don't talk for a couple of days ago. Well, we tried. And so just like you would immerse them in verbal language, you immerse them in an augmented language with assistive technology. That requires training for everybody that teaches him, the student and the parent. So I would immediately require that. Um, as it relates to placement, um, I would call an IEP meeting and say, if I'm going to be continued to deny a continuum of placement options, we're going to ask for the district to place him out of district and pay for it privately because he continues to be denied FAPE and he continues to be harmed. 
And so it's important that you learn these phrases and you say them. We don't say them to aha people. We say them because those are our procedural rights and it causes movement on the other side. Very good. Um, someone says, um, I basically asked for the data and was basically told um, that they would get the data um, next year at the annual ARD. Um, I've um, also requested amending goals of the IEP and have gotten pushback. Any thoughts on that? Do we have rights to have the data or do we really have to wait a whole year to get it? So we, we wouldn't possibly wait a whole year because we are nonstop programming for a child with a disability. Um, so if that was the situation and you were my client, I would probably file a civil rights complaint because I'm going to assume the reason you don't give me the data is because you don't take data. I don't find that people have something in a school and they're not giving it to me. Unfortunately, I love teachers. I love special ed teachers. I love paraprofessionals and everyone. However, they're not trained to take data. I, I know thousands of millions of them. I train them all the time. Um, probably 25% of my clients are school-based members. They've never been trained to date data. And so the U.S. Department of Civil Rights takes it very seriously when you don't take data daily on accommodations. That's important. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying at the, be at the beginning. You know, a lot of our kids with disabilities, they're a little bit behind anyway given whatever their diagnosis is, they might have processing speed, working memory, whatever we got going on, so many things. Um, but, you know, that data is critical to, to I, I always, I use the term turning the knobs, right? How do we turn the knobs? How do we adjust and, and to get to where we need to be? And yeah, a year at a time makes that pretty, pretty difficult for sure. It looks like we've got another question. Um, can you please repeat the name of the agency to file the complaint for the lack of data? Right. So, so that's not, again, it's really important that you pull out your procedural safeguards. Lack of data is not a, a procedural violation. It's very important that when you file, you know the right legal language. And so most Office of Civil Rights complaints are kicked out because that's not their jurisdiction. They're going to oversee the, the that IEP, uh, I'm sorry, that um, accommodations were not implemented. And so that's what I would file. Accommodations are not implemented. Then the onus, the duty would be on the school district to provide proof of that, right? When we talk about federal entities. There's a federal entity that does our taxes. If I told the federal government, spent $50,000 this year in gas, what would they like a copy of? My receipts, right? So your receipts from a school district to the Office of Civil Rights is printed copies of me taking all of these data collections. And so that's how I file because the data either exists and if the data exists, they have to provide, that's the first thing the OCR asks for is the data to refute Ms. Cunningham's allegation. So um, accommodations were not implemented. That would be the US Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. It's just ed.gov, ed.gov. Really important though, they have a little one-on-one -on -one webinar that you really know exactly how to file with the OCR because if they do call you for uh, a phone interview, you're talking to a federal attorney. So they talk all business, all legal. Very good. Um, so many good questions today. Um, it looks like we do have another one. After a state complaint on lack of data, the Department of Education representative said it's the staff's choice to share 
or not to share the raw data. That's what the state said? That's what she said. The state said that. Yeah, and that's, you know, we live in an amazing state that ranks last place in special education, which is why I access the U.S. Department of Education Office of Civil Rights. Every state has a good old boy system set up. Uh, Texas is 50th out of 50. There's a reason we got here. Um, and I appreciate the Texas Education Agency, but it has limitations. The federal government, they're not state attorneys and they're not the state education agency. So we live in the Fifth Circuit Court. So our uh, appellate court and our um, OTR offices are Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Um, and I file all over the nation and I find them to be the loveliest people who really have civil rights, because special ed is a civil right in their bones. And Karen, I just want to say, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, when we're we're talking to families with kids with disabilities, again, your situation is specialized. Your child's education is critically important. And so I'm with the best of you on the DIY projects and things you're going to handle yourself. And I work with um, amazingly, highly intelligent um, people. But if this is not your wheelhouse and you need help, what I would say is hire a professional. Your child's education and their future and their ability to operate in this world matters. And so I, you know, if if you have tried everything and exhausted everything and you're really hitting some brick walls, do hire a professional, do hire an advocate um, to 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 help you with this so that way you can get. I, I have clients. Um, and I'm not saying that this is, you know, obviously all these other methods to get to the, the end result, which is to, to get the tools and resources that you need for the child. But, but I, have, I have one particular client that I can think of that actually sued the district twice and won, and, and, and their child's private school is being paid for. I mean, and, and, but that's not stress-free, guys. That's not cheap, and it's not stress-free free by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, but working with an advocate is going to help you navigate your specific situation and what needs to happen um, or not on that. So I'm, I'm just a fan. There's some things I would say, do it yourself and other things when you're starting to deal with the law and all of these other rules and things like that. And um, IDEA, it's, it's a lot. Um, we've got um, another question here. Um, my son has OT and other services providers, including um, Cade, I'm, I'm not sure I know this, manager statement are being made alluding that they have large caseloads and can only focus on the academic of the class and have alluded that they are not responsible to address future employment and education. What's a good response um, for that? So in the 2004 reenactment of IDEA, it seems like it was just a few minutes ago, it's 20 years ago, we added transition. So transition is a requirement. And what that means was before that, we were just graduating kids with special ed and went, bye, bye. So now there's a requirement starting at 16 federally. Um, some states have increased that benefit to 14. Texas is 14. That we have, we are charged with actually, there's a transition supplement that requires that we start programming, adding agencies, getting them connected with outside agencies and writing goals for that three legal threshold, right? Gainful employment, independent living, and further education. It's required to be part of the IEP document. So I'd reach out to your transition specialist for your uh, local education agency and connect with them. 
Very, very good. Um, so we've got um, Karen's um, contact information on the screen here. And so everybody, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, everybody that is registered for today's webinar, you are going to get a copy of today's slides um, and a link um, for the recording so you can share with others or um, go back and reference those slides. And, you know, again, um, Karen has various training um, doors and um, as parents, as advocates, as professionals that you can walk through. Um, she is one awesome person, but she is one person. So um, she is educating others so uh, they can advocate for their own kids or the, or, or the families that they serve as well. Um, as always, Karen, it's always such a pleasure uh, to be with you. You're such, um, you're such fun. And it's so true, like the, the level of professionalism. This is a professional meeting. And it's true. As parents, you know, it's like the gloves come off when it comes to our kids. Like, it, it, this is serious. Do not, don't mess with my kids and my money and nobody gets hurt, right? It's kind of <laughs> like one of those things. And we start messing with the kids, somebody's going to get hurt. But you're so right in keeping that level head and, and you know, conflict resolution and kind of getting what you want and the whole you catch more flies uh, with, with with honey, right? So, yes. there, I mean, and, and sometimes it doesn't go that way. I mean, sometimes you can try and, you know, That's you it. can go and, and work as hard as you can um, in that direction and it still doesn't work. And we go another direction, but it's it's so apparent to me that you are so clear on what needs to happen. And I know you yourself, you've got grown kids and her first grandson, um, um, by the way, but she also has uh, a child uh, that went through special education as well. So I always, you know, the term baptized by fire, that's for yes. sure. But a lot of years behind you um, growing this and, and, and really, uh, you know, growing your understanding and how everything works. So um, talk to us about this training. Yeah, so we have, um, we are, we have trainings for people to advocate for their child. We have trainings to be an advocate. We actually have a virtual this weekend, which we haven't had in over a year. So there'll be people from all over the nation where we do our two-person training live virtual from, from your bed, from your boardroom, from a cliff, from your car. So we're coming to a device near you. We always have the two-day training on demand. You can take it anytime. And then um, multiple times during the year, we have the in-person two-day training in Houston. And then for those that want to really grow your professionalism as a professional advocate, we have a 10-week, 20-hour mastermind as well. I love that so much. All right. So again, you guys are going to have the links to all of her contact information, how to get her email address, websites, LinkedIn, TikTok, um, Instagram. She is out there for sure. You can find her. Um, and I'm forgot to mention YouTube as well. I know we're um, running out of time today. And as always, I just want to say when we're planning for special needs, there's a lot of things that need to be on your radar. And I know that education is, you know, high on that list for sure. But as we're thinking um, of our kids and our kids are growing, like I said, the days, uh, the days are long, but the years are short. So there's a lot of things and steps that you can be taking now and turning the knobs now um, to be where you want to be as far as, you know, your you know, as far as planning for your loved one with a disability, their future care, having money in the right buckets to preserve eligibility for, for programs in the future. Um, we can help with all of that. Guys, we have a YouTube channel. Um, there's over 200 webinars on that YouTube channel, and we have topics um, related to all of these matters, Texas waivers, SSI, SSDI, ABLE accounts, guardianship, special needs trust, you name it, it is out there. So you can peruse those topics. You can subscribe for free and peruse those topics for the planning journey and kind of where you are um, on that.
Um, in today's um, slides, you're going to get um, this slide that will have a link to all of our upcoming webinars that you can register for um, for free. And um, I always just like to introduce our team. We work on a collaborative team here at Consolidated Planning Group. We are nationally certified as Social Security Advisors and members of the Special Needs Planning Academy. And I have happened to say uh, here that I work with um, some pretty awesome people, so I always like to share faces and names. And I know Michelle uh, has partnered with you, Karen, in the past, and we've done several um, webinars as well. Guys, our consultations are always free. Uh, you can uh, reach out to us if you've got um, questions on kind of your planning needs and what you've done so far. I always say it's not about looking, you know, looking back or beating yourself up about what you haven't done. It's about looking forward. You're here now. You're taking in the information. It's just about looking forward. So we can help you with that no matter where you are, whether you've done a lot of planning, uh, you've done none, or you've done some and then you put it on the shelf and you meant to pick it back up and it's been a while and you need to dust it off, um, we, we can definitely help you. You can reach out directly to us at contact.cpgcares.net. You can hover over this QR code and schedule directly with us, or you can reach out to us uh, at our office. If you're joining us today by podcast, we are in Texas. Um, you know, IDEA um, covers the, the whole country. And I know that Karen um, works all across the country, not just in Texas. So she um, will certainly be able to help you all around uh, all around the U.S. But if you are attending by podcast today and you would like a copy of today's slides, simply just email us at contact at cpgcares.net. Guys, it's certainly been my pleasure. And as always, um, Karen, you're awesome. Um, and we look forward to partnering with you again soon. And thanks, everyone, for your questions. Great questions today. Take care. Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.